0: read. Matthew chapter 3 is where we're at, so go ahead and open up. It is great to see you guys, and really great to be able to study this passage together. Very, very interesting passage for us tonight. And here's a problem with how we can often think as people. We're afraid of things we don't understand. Do you notice that tendency with people? People are afraid of things they don't understand. They're afraid of mystery. And sometimes we can be so afraid of mystery or so afraid of not understanding something that we would rather have an incorrect or even an uh, incomplete understanding of something Than to simply be comfortable with not being able to understand. So, let me give you two illustrations. So, two illustrations from the Bible where we see this. One area that we see this is the Trinity. So, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that there's one God. The Bible is as clear as can be that there's one God. You go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, 4 to 9, the Shema, where Jesus gets his greatest commandment. It says clearly there's one God. You look at 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's writing, and he says, hey, there's one God. It's perfectly clear for us in the Bible that there's one God. Yet, it is just as clear, and in fact, we're going to see it tonight, that this one single God exists in three separate, distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, our human minds they can completely understand parts of that, components of that truth. Our human minds can easily grasp that there's one God. We can can get that. We can understand that there's one God. And in a completely separate concept, we can understand three different people, right? Those two things independently, our minds don't have any trouble with. But when we try to combine those two things, then we hit this barrier with our understanding that our human minds just simply can't overcome. The one God existing in three persons is just beyond what our human reason can comprehend. And so our, our minds so often get get freaked out with those kind, kinds of things. And some of the options that you'll see people take with that is they start to strip away truths until they get something that their minds can easily understand, right? So perhaps you strip away the part of there only being one God. It, perhaps you're like many religions throughout human history that believe in a multitude of gods. And, um, and so that, some people go that route. Or a more common strategy is people begin to take the trinity and strip away the parts they deny the deity of the holy spirit they deny the deity of jesus they hold to perhaps just the deity of the father Um, or there's even what was known as modalism and still exists in some circles today where it's this idea like okay there is only one god but he only really takes the form of one person at a time. So sometimes you see him as the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you see him as Father. Sometimes you see him as the Son. And basically what people are doing is they're trying to strip away truths from the Trinity to get it down to something that the human mind can comprehend. But in doing so, they've completely corrupted the truth of the Trinity. It's it's a, a, t- a strategy that our human minds take, but unfortunately it leads us away from the biblical truth that there is in fact one solitary God in this universe, yet this God exists in three separate persons. The correct approach, instead of taking the path that people so often take, where they take away from the truth until they can understand it, but then it's no longer truth, the correct response is to, by faith, Trust that what the Bible teaches us is true and even though my human mind is not sophisticated to understand the depths of God's truth It's still true. I Just because I don't understand calculus doesn't make the principles of calculus any less true The problem the deficiency is in my understanding not in calculus Same thing with God. Uh, Another area that we see this is in the area of God's sovereignty, right? Like the fact that God is perfectly sovereign over all things, yet as individuals, we live and make decisions and have thoughts and we act as independent agents. How does our free will and our free decision making interact with the sovereignty of God? I don't know. I don't know, but the Bible teaches that to us clearly, right? I mean, you even see the words of Jesus. That whoever the Father gives to me, I'll by no means turn away, and nobody who comes to me will ever be turned away. You see that interaction, that tension between God's sovereignty and human free will, and what people often do because they're afraid of the mystery, is they just strip one of them away, right? Right. Like they get rid of God's sovereignty because it's offensive. And now we're just nothing but free agents. Everything's about our free will. Or they flip the other way. They become fatalist, where there is no free will at all. It's just everything is completely predetermined by God and there's no responsibility on our part because we're just parts of the machine that God has put together. The reality is the Bible teaches both, right? The, and it's on our part to accept by faith, Those things that we can't understand. So why do I bring that up? Well, I bring it up because I don't want us to be afraid of mystery tonight. I don't want us to be afraid of those things that we don't understand, because frankly, in this passage, we are going to come across some things that are perhaps beyond our understanding. We are going to have questions that God doesn't necessarily give us the answer to. Now, just like with the Trinity and just like with the sovereignty, we're gonna see a lot of rock solid truth, undeniable truth, crystal clear teaching from scripture tonight, to where we see much about the person of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we're gonna see some mystery. And so what I ask you to do is to be thoughtful about the mysterious stuff, just like with the Trinity, just like with God's sovereignty, it is great to let your mind meditate on those things and think about them. And the mysteries that we see tonight, I want you to be thoughtful about it, to think about it, to ponder it. Yet you can't be dogmatic, right? Like you can't be dogmatic about the things that the Bible doesn't teach us clearly. Yet in the things that it does clearly show us, we need to be unflinching in accepting these undeniable truths and be okay with the mystery. So last week, we started in chapter 3 of Matthew, and Alejandro did a great job of introducing us to the person in the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw in verse 2 that John had a message for the people of Israel. In verse 2, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of John the Baptist to the people was, turn away from your sin and turn to God become serious about being faithful followers of God, genuine followers of God from the heart. And as Alejandro taught us from Matthew last week, it, it, it was um, not just anybody that was calling the people to repentance, but it was the prophetic voice that the Old Testament foretold as the forerunner of Christ. You saw verse 3, verse um, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Matthew 3 tells us that there's quite a response to John's ministry. Verse 5 showed us that people from all around Jerusalem, Judea, the Jordan Valley, they're all coming to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And it gets really interesting in verse seven. In verse seven, you see the religious elites, the religious members of society, the Pharisees, the Sadducees coming to be baptized by John. But John makes it really clear to them that God is looking for genuine repentance from the heart, not for some superficial level of Religion, not for some exterior. Oh man, did I not move it fast enough? I'll get to moving quicker here. Mm-hmm. But um, John makes it real clear that God is looking for repentance and faith from the heart. They, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to partake in John's baptism, they're going to have to show that they've abandoned their attempts at man-made religion and man-made righteousness, and that they are ready to follow, Christ, or follow God from the heart. Otherwise, John has no interest in baptizing them. Look at verses 7 to 9. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The point he's making in verse nine there is they clung to these superficial outward acts of religion. They clung to their religion, hoping that it would make them right with God. They clung to the idea that we're the physical descendants of Abraham. Maybe that'll make us right with God. And John's message to them was absolutely not. Until you have a desire to follow God in obedience from the heart, your man-made religion is worthless. Lastly, in verse 11, John makes it clear that he is just the forerunner. He's getting all this attention. All these people are coming from all different parts of the region. Yet John, as much attention as he's getting, and as much notoriety as he's getting, he is not the main attraction. In verse 11, John says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The point John's making there, I'm not, is I'm not the main attraction. There's another one coming. And his baptism, his gift of the Holy Spirit through following him, that's the main attraction. And tonight, the main attraction shows up. Verse 13, then Jesus arrived. The main attraction shows up. So the baptism of Christ, the theme here is Jesus, Jesus' earthly ministry is inaugurated by his baptism. Up to this point in Jesus' life, you know, Luke records for us when Jesus goes to visit the temple as, I think he was a 12-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a young boy, um, but beyond that, we don't know really much about what took place between the birth of Christ and and his this point in his life when he's about 30 years old this is really the inauguration of his earthly ministry so let's read this passage tonight verses 13 to 17. let's read this um but going back to our introduction there's going to be a lot of questions i hope i hope you have a lot of questions because that means you're thinking about it if you're not thinking then this doesn't seem too mysterious If you're not thinking, this doesn't seem like a big deal. If you have a lot of questions, that is a good thing. But there's gonna be questions that we're gonna have that we can't conclusively answer, and we gotta be okay with that. But at the same time, we're gonna see some rock solid crystal clear truth here that is absolutely life changing, eternity changing, and we cling to those things. So let's read verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent Jesus saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him Permit it at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we'll look at two different things tonight. We'll look at the event, the event that takes place here, the baptism of Christ. And then the second section we'll look at is the proclamation, the proclamation that's made. But first, we'll t- take a look at at the event. And it starts off with a unique arrival Uh, because thousands of people have been coming to John to be baptized. People from all over, people from all ranks of society. And yet there's something very different about the man who shows up in verse 13. In verse 13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee. Uh, Jesus Jesus here, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, Uh, back in verse 11, John talked about the one who is coming after him who is mightier, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, the one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. Here he is. In verse 13, Jesus arrives from Galilee. Galilee, so I should have brought a map here, but if you have like, you know, your typical Israel box here, Galilee's that northwestern region where Jesus grew up. And uh, Jesus arrives from Galilee, and it's different from everybody else who has come. Now, the first major question I have that I don't have the answer to is uh, what did John understand about Jesus at this point? In fact, that's a question I have often throughout the Gospels. Like, the disciples, the apostles, what did they really understand about Jesus at certain points in the story? Because there seems to be a progression, right? Like you, you, you look as, and Peter, he wears his heart on his sleeve, his emotions on his sleeve. So I feel like you see it more in the life of Peter than anybody. Uh, but like things happen throughout the earthly ministry of Christ where you just see Peter react in a way that you think, okay, he just got like some fresh insight into who Jesus really is. And remember, at this point in time, you know, the Holy Spirit comes, Acts chapter 2. That's when Pentecost takes place. And that's when, uh, when you think about how do you really understand God, the key to that for you today is, is the holy spirit living inside of you when you come to faith in christ the holy spirit instantly indwells you and gives you the ability to understand truths about god that just are not possible apart from his indwelling and you've got to remember the way that the holy spirit indwells us who have faith in christ now and teaches us now the apostles john the baptist the the new characters throughout the gospel narratives the Holy Spirit was not indwelling them at that point. And so they learned about God and the Holy Spirit still taught them in, in ways, but it, there, there seems to be this progression. And so what does John understand about who Jesus is at this point in the story? Yeah, I don't know exactly. The The Bible definitely um, tells us some things. Um, John knew a lot about Jesus, just from the fact that they are relatives. Do you remember that? That John and Jesus are, are relatives? And so he obviously knew a lot about him. And even when um, Elizabeth and Mary, so John's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary, um, when they interacted with each other during the pregnancy, they knew there was, uh, there was something special about this Jesus who God sent to save. Uh, and so undoubtedly, John knew a lot about Jesus. He, he understood that this one who would come after him, like he pointed out to the people who came to hear him, would baptize with, uh, with the spirit and with fire. In John 1, 29 and 30, when Jesus comes to John at the Jordan, John declares, uh, as he saw Jesus coming towards him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks, who ranks before me, because he was before me. Um, and, and so I can't outline precisely for you what John understood, but John knew that this visitor in verse 13, this Jesus from Galilee, he knew that that he was a visitor that none of the previous people compared to, right? There's something special about this Christ, this Messiah. Um, even the fact, think about the fact that John says, in, in John or John the Baptist says in John 1.30, after me comes somebody who ranks before me, or because he was before me. Now, who was born first, John or Jesus? Um. John was, right? So if John was born first, how was Jesus before him? Uh, John 1 1, in the beginning, well. Yeah, no, you're right. In the beginning was the Word,
1: and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. He
0: was in the beginning with God. Yeah, he nailed it. So John 1 1, 2, 3, those first verses of John 1 tell us that Jesus existed as God from the beginning. Of time. It's pointing us to the deity of Christ. So we have a unique arrival in verse 13, and this unique arrival makes a shocking request. Verses 13 and 14, a shocking request. So Jesus arrives from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now, for us here, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that we all know this story, or most of us have probably heard this story before. It, it'd be nice if we could pretend like we hadn't heard it before, because if you're being thoughtful about what we studied last week, about John's ministry, his message, what his baptism was about, if you've got all of those things in mind, that it's about repentance, and it's about turning in obedience to God, and then you also, on the other hand, in mind who Jesus is the perfectly holy Son of God eternal God then this request for baptism is a shocking thing it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense and it didn't make sense to John and it really shouldn't make sense to you if you're thinking about it because remember verse 11 John's baptism Was a baptism for those who were practicing repentance. What is repentance? Ian? Uh, uh, Quitting one thing, turning around, and doing another. Yes, but when we talk about it, we're almost always talking about sin, right? You're exactly right. But we're always talking about sin. When we talk about repentance, we're talking about turning from sin to obedience. God. Now, why does that make no sense in the case of Jesus?
1: Because he didn't sin.
0: He had no sin. He had nowhere to turn. He had nothing to turn from. Um, Repentance requires there to be sin, a turning away from sin into obedience to God. Also, another one of the key requirements for John's baptism was. In verse 6, confession of sin. What's confession? Yeah, admitting your sinfulness in an agreement with God, right? Like agreeing with God about your sinfulness. Again, how can Jesus confess sin when he has no sin to confess? He was perfect. John's baptism doesn't make sense in the life of Jesus. In fact, there's irony here, right? I mean, you don't think of Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees being in the same category, do you? But who are the only other people that John had discouraged, or at least we have record of here, that John discouraged from being baptized?
1: The Pharisees
0: the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He discouraged the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were too bad. Then Jesus comes along. He discourages Jesus because he's too good. You know? It's like uh, it's it's got to be the only time that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Jesus are in the same bucket. I
1: don't think they were too bad because no one is too
0: bad. That's true. Saved by God. I think it
1: was just they wanted it so they could say that they did this new thing and so they could just get a little bit of street credit on the way.
0: That's a great point. Ian made a great point. Nobody is too bad, right? Nobody is too bad. It's uh, an unwillingness to recognize you're too bad, right? That's a very good point of clarification there. Um, uh, In fact, John, John's confused here, right? John's like, okay, Jesus, my repentance or my baptism is a baptism of repentance for those who are confessing sins. That's confusing me. And then on top of that, he says in verse 14, hey, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. I need your ministry to me. I need, I need your baptism. I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. There's a lot of mystery here, but what we'll get to the response here. The response shows the righteousness of our Lord the righteousness of our Lord. You see verse 15, Jesus answered and said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I wonder how long this conversation really went. You know, I doubt it was just this one, two sentence exchange here. I'm sure there was a much um, broader conversation. It'd be interesting to know what else is in that conversation? And to see if uh, more of an explanation is given. Why do you think Jesus desired to be baptized by John? What are some of your ideas? We'll go. I'll, I'll be interested. I read a ton, and none of them convinced me that they are right or wrong. I don't know. So I read a ton of different ideas. I'd be interested. We'll start. We'll go in order here. Ian. Maybe, I think it's
1: maybe setting a example. Yeah.
0: Hey, maybe setting an example. Undoubtedly, Jesus did a lot of things in life that set an example for us. I don't have any problems with that idea. We're going to go kind of in order here, Owen. So I'll get to you, man. You're just the last row, so sorry. (laughs) It it was a command. It was a command. Okay. You know, um, like in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, there is a number of baptism rituals. Perhaps Jesus... Was falling into one of, the, or following one of those. Um, it might
1: have been part of God's plan so that the uh, Spirit could descend as a dove, and He could say, "This is my son, right Well, please." Yeah,
0: simply part of God's plan for His life. Did, did you have something? I
1: was gonna say what he was gonna say. Well, there you go. It's you're
0: related, so it must be magic there. Oh, Owen. I'm sorry. Humble. Yeah, humble at that. Hey, that you know, he's. He's associating himself with the people he came to save. Max? Uh,
1: prophecy.
0: Prophecy. Okay, like there's an Old Testament prophecy about that. Yeah, I don't know if there was. I'm not disagreeing with you because I don't know that. that, but I can't think of an example there. Maybe.
1: Uh, Last one. Uh, it was his. It was the commander of the Jewish people, and he is a Jew. So I guess setting an example and following the Jewish law. Yeah, you know I.
0: Baptism kind of had some, there was some similar type things. Yeah, it's a, here's what I, I don't really know. (laughs) Like, what's. He probably
1: identified himself. Yeah. Yeah. That was on the card. Is that what he said?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, hey, I'm not going to disagree with it. Here's the thing. There's a lot of ideas, you know, that, so in addition. So I think most of what y'all said, I'd read. Some other ones I read that y'all didn't say were uh, foreshadowing his death and resurrection. Like this was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Um, an example, uh, he was associ- associating himself, himself with the true followers of God. There's just countless ideas. And this is what I was talking about earlier. I have no problem with pondering the question. Ponder think deeply about the things of God. It's a great thing to do. Ponder the question. Just do it with a little bit of humility, knowing that, hey, don't be dogmatic about what um, the Bible doesn't clearly give us the answer to. Greg,
1: what does dogmatic
0: mean? Dogmatic is like, where you believe something and it's non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable belief. Um, So like when we think about in our churches, Dusty will often use like issues of conscience. So issues of conscience are things that you're not dogmatic on. You negotiate on those things. You allow flexibility there. Um, You know, trying to think of examples I can give without getting myself into trouble. Um, Like, oh, geez, I just, this is, might be a bad example. Sorry if you're on the recording and this is a bad example. But like, when does the rapture occur? Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, like, like things like that, like, there's really good people with really good ideas. And it's not a great idea to be dogmatic on that. However, The Trinity, we're going to be dogmatic on that because the Bible is as clear as can be that there's one God and just as clear that this one God exists in three different persons equally God. Um, So we're going to be dogmatic on that. It's a non-negotiable. Here's what I'm going to be dogmatic on, on why Jesus was baptized. In verse 15, he says, it's fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to go with that. That's what Jesus tells us. And so the need for Jesus to be baptized is, I can't explain the ins and outs of why, but I'm 100% certain that the Father wanted Jesus to do this. Jesus knew that the Father wanted him to do this. And Jesus was always going to be obedient to the Father. It was Jesus... Obediently following the path that the father had laid out for him. That's all the passage gives us to be set in stone, right? And so um, that's good enough for me. Um, It was an act of obedience to the father. And immediately, immediately after this event, it leads to a profound proclamation from the father. The Proclamation, verses 16 and 17. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The clear truth here that we see unfold is that the ministry of Christ, His ministry on this earth, it involves the whole Trinity. Here's the inauguration of His earthly ministry and we see the entire Trinity involved. We see one God, three distinct persons.
1: So I've got kind of a problem with the text. Yours says, and after he was baptized. Mine says, and and when Jesus was baptized. What would you go with?
0: Well, I'd have to pull out my phone here and see. I guess what their original Greek said. Um, we can do that afterwards. We'll, we we'll leave we'll leave a little bit of wiggle room there, okay? And we'll pull it out afterwards because I'm not that good to pull it out right now and like break it down for you it'll take some thought but so it, it's either as he's coming up what does your say again
1: um and when he was baptized
0: when he was baptized so it's at some point from you want to say mid-baptism process like him coming up out of the water to afterwards at some point that's when the heavens are open and this proclamation occurs what do you think it means when it says the heavens were open what do you think's going on there yeah (laughs) yeah there's no silly well there could be so that's not a silly answer there could be silly answers but I mean we don't this is another thing we don't really know Are y'all got the same answer again Let's see, uh, Let's see, let, let the... Let okay, uh,
1: like a hole in the sky?
0: Yeah. I, I saw some other hands down here. I
1: was thinking, I think it's in Revelation when it says the sky cracked open.
0: Yeah, so he brings up Revelation. I'm going to bring that up in a second. Owen? Uh, it says here that there's lightning, so I just imagine like, it's these dark story, a of lightning, and it's bird and a Yeah, Ian?
1: So, up in heaven, you have the glory of God, and in Exodus, you have Moses leading the Israelites out, and he sees God's glory on top of Mount Sinai. It's like a bright light. So, I think that there was a huge light in the sky kind of thing, like a bigger second sun almost.
0: Yeah, no, that's not a bad idea either, because there's a few different places in the Bible where we get descriptions from people uh, seeing the heavens open up to them. You know, like Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called into ministry. Go read Isaiah chapter 6. It is one of the best chapters. And if you can find this, and if you need help finding it, let me know, I'll find it for you. R.C. Sproul. Does um, a sermon on Isaiah chapter 6 that I think is just one of the best sermons I've ever heard um, of all time. So if you're interested in that, let me know. I can can find it for you. Um, But Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah gets a a vision there. Acts chapter 7. Remember Stephen? As he's being stoned, it's like God gives him that vision of the heavens opening up um, y'all brought up Revelation. Yeah, Revelation 4 and 5. John, the author of the Gospel, of John and Revelation, um, gets that vision of God's throne room in heaven.
1: When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, he is glowing. Yeah. Because he just saw
0: the yes, I think they're bright light, I guess. Yeah, bright. I mean, you think of Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel gets that vision of like the heavenly beings and it's just heavily saturated in light, right? Um, And so the Bible does give give us some descriptions there Uh, but but the here we see the heavens are open and the Spirit of God descends as a dove lighting on Jesus landing on Jesus Um, Now, that's interesting, too, right? Because, uh, first of all, is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Uh, that's That's one that people can wrestle with, right? Like, we'll go through them all here, but the Father, people are usually pretty good with the Father being God. He's the Father. And then Jesus, people are usually... Pretty, you know, Jesus is if you're a believer, but the Holy Spirit, we so easily forget about. But the Bible is so clear to us that the Holy Spirit is God. Go back to the beginning. Genesis 1-2. Who is hovering over the face of the waters before creation? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is there before time begins. Um, Acts chapter 5. Remember At- Ananias and Sapphira? And uh, they lie about what they've sold the land for. And Peter says, hey, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. He Peter uses Holy Spirit and God as interchangeable words and concepts. I love 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how... Um, each of us we has a spirit, we have a human spirit so Max has a spirit I have a spirit, Ian has a spirit and it's a human spirit in the same way God, the spirit of God is divine spirit um, 100% divinity, in fact think about it okay, we call it the Holy Spirit call him the Holy Spirit who's holy? God you know, God alone is holy. And even the holiness that we or anybody else or anything else, the angels or any other holiness is derived from the only holy God. So when somebody says, hey, how do you know the Holy Spirit's God? Well, it's like, well, you just called them holy, right? God alone is holy. And I think it's important for us. It's a helpful practice when you pray, when you worship to pray and worship to the Holy Spirit, to treat them as part of the Trinity. And what I love about that, beyond just the fact that it's right because the Spirit is God, I love it engages your mind. It engages your yourself in prayer and worship in a whole new way when you start thinking about, okay, what, what are the different roles that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit play in my life? And, and how do my prayers interact with them in that way? But the Holy Spirit absolutely is God. And the Spirit descends like a dove. You know, I, I, again, what exactly does that mean? The, the Spirit doesn't have a body Is it possible that the the spirit just decided to, like, possess a dove at that point and land on? I don't know. Uh, I feel doubtful. uh, But hey, I I don't know. Um, I think
1: it was more like the devil's a vessel for God's
0: will, that that was his like. Yeah, I don't know. did the Holy Spirit make himself visible in a way to, to where he could temporarily be seen in some physical way descending on Jesus? Or was it just such a presence um, that the Spirit was detected in a physical way? Who knows? It's not really the point. Go ahead. Do you think that it had any
1: significance that uh, Noah, he released a dove? when they found out that there was dry land, do you think that
0: has any significance? Yeah, some people have definitely made that connection. Um, yeah, that's a connection that people definitely make in re- relation to this. Maybe, I don't know. I read that and I wasn't convinced, but I wasn't, I mean, I don't know. I, to me, like I said, it's fun to ponder that stuff, but I'm not gonna get too caught up on it. What I am gonna get caught up on is the fact that the Holy Spirit is here testifying to who Jesus Christ is, testifying to uh, the proclamation that he, really in agreement with, thank you, with uh, what the Father's doing, it, it, the Holy Spirit testifying to the person and work of Christ. That is really the key point. Now the Father. Joins the testimony Is the father God? That's someone that we all kind of get Easily, you know Like, okay, yeah, he's the father He's got to be God, right? And in fact, that's a major emphasis Of the testimony of Christ Hey guys that's, That's a major emphasis Of the ministry of Christ Really throughout his time on the earth He's constantly showing us his desire to follow, follow the will of the Father, constantly subordinating himself to the will of the Father, seeking to glorify the Father. Um, Jesus tells us the Father is the Holy One, in Sermon on the Mount. Uh, your righteousness, your holy, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, he constantly prays to the Father. Um, Jesus leaves no doubt. As to the deity of the Father. And now the Father, in turn, will leave no doubt as to the deity of Christ. He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's a number of ways that you can show the deity of Christ. And since we're going through Matthew, we're going to see a lot of those. I mean, we've already seen some, right? When the Magi show up and they worship Jesus. I mean, when for them to worship Jesus, either Jesus is God or they were grossly sinning. We're to worship nobody but God. But the Magi show up and worship Jesus and there's no condemnation. Um So, there's a number of things we'll see throughout Matthew to show us the deity of Christ. But tonight, it's the proclamation of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John 3.16, the verse that is probably the most commonly known in the Bible. God sent His only begotten Son. When it talks about his only begotten Son. The point there is that the nature of the Father, the, divin- the divine nature of the Father is also the divine nature of the Son. I mean, when a human has a child, do they give birth to a puppy? To a bird? To a frog? Or to another human, right? Like, uh, uh, the, the baby is born with the same nature of the parent. When Jesus is shown to us as the only begotten son of the father, it's a direct testimony to his deed. Remember uh, John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. They pick up stones to kill Jesus. And remember why they do it? Let's let's read that real quick. John 10, 30 to 33 says, um, uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And that just sets them off. The Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jews understood that unless Jesus is God, then his claim to be one with the Father, his claim to be the Son of God was blasphemy, but they got it wrong, right? Because Jesus' claim was true. Jesus is God. He is the Son. It goes all the way back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us about the coming Messiah who will reign over this world. And guess who Yahweh calls Him? His Son. His Son. It looks like it's south of here. It's the tornado. you a bitch. Well, we're not under it. Not under oh, yeah, we are under the tornado. tornado you know, I'm going to do here. It's the We're on the tornado. So, technically, we're not under the tornado. No, we're on the watch. We're still on the watch. Yeah, the tornado warning is doesn't start till Roanoke.
1: Yeah, it's from Roanoke South. The warning is. I can't wait
0: to get picked up with the it. So, okay. so yeah, I think unless. <laughs> hey, just tell me if they show a tornado warning for us.
1: It's headed this way. Oh my god. Huh?
0: Hey, Naomi. It is. That does look good. All right, we'll wrap it up real quick. But tonight would be one of those nights to not go play. Outside. Alright, so let's wrap this up. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this passage that I can't explain to you perfectly. I can't explain to you perfectly why Jesus needed to obediently be baptized. I can't explain to you perfectly what it looks like when the heavens open up. I can't explain to you perfectly In what form the dove represented the Holy Spirit. But here's what I can tell you perfectly. I can tell you with 100% confidence that at the baptism of Christ, we see the full Trinity come together to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the part that we have to grapple with. That's the part that is crystal clear and it determines your eternity. Not the mystery stuff, right? Like that stuff's interesting, good to think about. But your eternity will be based upon do you accept the testimony here of the Father? That's the question. That's the question. Do you recognize Christ as the Son of God? Um, and so, and so that's really that's really the one thing to wrestle with from this passage, right? This is really the launching point for the mystery of Christ, or for the ministry of Christ on this earth. But it starts with the key: Jesus is the Son of God, and we'll go from there. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and uh, just pray that uh, you would. Let these truths of who your son is sink deeply into our heart, change our lives. Pray that you would um, give us the faith to submit to that reality, Lord. We uh, do pray that you would keep everybody safe traveling here tonight, traveling back home. and uh, we just thank you for how gracious and good you are to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright guys, sorry for the distractions. but.